0: Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities Podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities Podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Our guest today is Alon Levy, a fellow with the NYU Marin Institute. Their research focuses on public transportation and how to apply best practices from cities around the world. Welcome to the show, Alon. So to start, talk about how you got interested in, in infrastructure.
1: I lived in New York. I was in grad school between 06 and 11. When I moved to New York, I mean, I was interested in politics in general. I mean, growing up in Israel, you can't be not interested in politics, but I didn't necessarily care about infrastructure more than like literally any other issues or stuff. In New York, the subway is omnipresent in culture, let's say. So for example, or in socialization, I mean, if I'm in Morningside High, it's everyone I socialize with, is in Brooklyn, and it's a four-seat ride, then I need to think a lot about the subway, right? What
0: what does a four-seat ride mean? I don't even know what that
1: means. Oh, so a one-seat ride is when you can get from... Oh, just one train.
0: So seat is basically a number of transfers. So four seats, you have to do three intermediate transfers to get there.
1: That is correct. So New York is not very good at two-seat rides. Um, There are a lot of cities that make sure that you can get from most stations to most stations, even all stations to all stations with just one transfer. New York is very bad at that. So there's a lot of three-seat rides and sometimes you can even snag a four-seat ride. Thinking about it kind of forced me to think a lot about the subway. And I mean, this was, it seems like a cool example of public works, a cool, a cool example of how to just expand non-car access. And then I stumbled across the cost differences.
0: Yeah. And so I think that's, I guess, probably where I know you, maybe many of our listeners know you from, is this looking at what the cost differences are between mostly subways, but kind of major infrastructure in OECD countries. What are those cost differences? How did you find them? And why had nobody really been talking about them before before you came on?
1: Okay. So what the cost differences are is there's this systematic difference in construction costs for subways, there's also a difference for light rail, which is smaller, but still serious.
0: And how, um, how do you define light rail versus a subway? What, what's the like, technical difference in definition?
1: So the American definition is just whether you run vehicles that could run in streetcar mode or not. So there are American lines that are called light rail that are functionally rapid transit, like the Green Line in L.A. They're not subways. They're, they're basically never underground. So... Rapid transit is designed around longer trains that are supposed to be always absolutely separated from traffic. So this means that you have zero lane sharing. You could have grade crossings. It's uncommon, but this does happen. The Chicago L has some. The New York City subway had some into the 60s. But whenever you have grade crossings, they have to be separated by railroad gates, so the train has absolute priority. Light rail Before defining lighter, I'm going to define a streetcar or a tramway. A tramway is a train, it's usually shorter. It runs in the street. It could usually get dedicated lanes, but it could sometimes run in mixed traffic. And for example, European tramways, they try to give the, the new ones dedicated lanes when possible, but sometimes they have to compromise and not do that on some segments. They cross streets like normal traffic so this means that they don't generally have railroad crossings they never have absolute priority at crossings this leads to lower speed however because you're running on the surface the construction costs are lower so that is the trade-off american light rail is this kind of hybrid where usually you run as a tramway in the center of the city and then you usually at grade, but um with railroad crossings farther out. Usually you're going to use a disused rail right-of-way, like in, for example, Portland. And then there are the weird ones, like you have lines that run light rail vehicles, but are functionally rapid transit. For example, the Green Line in LA, you have lines that are kind of fast in the center and slow outside city center. They're called subway surface lines, like Boston has this on the Green Line, Philadelphia, where it's literally called subway surface lines, San Francisco, where it's called, where it's just metro. It's very common in Germany. So this is, this is the difference. The subway part is what I study the most. And the reason is that these are usually mega projects. Okay, It costs a lot to build a subway. And the result is that these are going to be publicly debated. So if I want to know how much it costs to build, for example, Metro Line 14 in Paris, I can put, for example, Paris Metro Line 14 cost. I mean, I think if you put it in Google now, you'll get to me. But 10 years ago, you didn't you can put this in French and you will get to media articles that will tell you how much it costs because it's widely reported because the line which cost at the time maybe a billion euros and I mean there's been inflation since I mean a billion euros is a lot of money that will be posted in, in mass media so this is why I did subway I mean you can also do this for light rail it's just much harder search there are more light rail lines being built there are Sometimes they're not going to be reported except in trade media. Sometimes they're going to be bundled with extras that I need to winnow out the extras. It's a thing that you can do, and we're probably going to eventually extend to that. But right now we're doing rapid transit, not just that they could be elevated, but that's our database. And you see a large American cost premium, especially in New York cost premium.
0: And why does that cost premium exist? So... I have a bunch of explanations,
1: none of which is fully satisfying yet. So if you look at how subways are built in the United States, so in the United States, the only line that we did a really deep dive on is the Green Line extension, which is light rail. It's in a trench. And the problems there are numerous, but somewhat different from those of subways. So a lot of it comes from people having technological ideas that are stuck a few generations ago. So it's not exactly clear. I mean, we're trying to figure out staffing levels. We do know that there's a lot of overstaffing on the white-collar side of construction, lots of supervisors that are just there to make sure everything's alright, right, but they're not really needed. Blue-collar overstaffing is likely also the case. We have less of a smoking gun on that, but it is something that is likely also the case. But it's not... I mean, so to put things in perspective, okay, the cheapest places in the world to build and Nowadays build a subway for around a hundred million dollars per kilometer. Global median is 250. Basically everything that speaks English costs more than that.
0: So we before, are just a billion. Yeah. Before getting then, I guess, more into kind of the why, maybe maybe trying to get the pattern a little bit more clear, right? US has substantial overruns. Are there any like other generalizations can be made? Do Anglo mm-hmm. countries also tend to have overruns? Is Northern Europe yes. cheap? Is Southern Europe cheap? Like what What's the pattern before we get more into kind of the granular specifics?
1: Oh, sure, yeah, so here's the pattern. The parts of the world, the, so in the developed world, English is bad, and, but I want to make it clear that English has been only consistently bad for let's say 10, maybe 15 years. And,
0: and you, you say English, at, you mean like brain English? Like England mean, English? I, I mean like the English language. countries? Okay, language, so this includes and Singapore, this includes Hong Kong, places like that? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. So all Hong places is, that operate in English tend to have cost yes. overruns.
1: Yes. And by the way, it's not cost overruns, it's high absolute cost. I mean, you can have, okay. I mean, okay. Barcelona, the Barcelona line nine is actually below median cost, even with a factor of three, three and a half cost overrun, just mm-hmm. because they thought that they could build for Madrid costs. They couldn't. But Madrid costs are so low that that line's three and a half is still below global median. So everything that speaks English, but I mean, what do you mean by speak English? I mean, everyone in the Netherlands speaks English. We're not quite. The Netherlands is also expensive, and everyone in Sweden speaks English, and the costs in Sweden are very
0: low. Um, do you, but you count can... Netherlands as an English country? Um, no. Is English so because the language within which they issue the contracts, cetera, is all Dutch, even though it has yes. like ninety percent English penetration or like like fluency, whatever?
1: Yeah, that is correct. It's not. It's not how good you are at speaking English. I mean, and for example. Italy, I mean, most people don't speak English, but all the planners do. Or or France, it's the same thing, but they're not English. So when I say English, I mostly mean flow of ideas, and and usually it's flow of bad ideas coming from Britain and the United States. And this is why, I mean, stressing that English has been consistently bad, but only maybe in the last 15 years. So Singapore right now has really high construction costs, but 20 years ago it didn't. Canada, same thing. Canada... Even if you look at that, say, so the Canada line, you can kind of understand why it was kind of cheapish because they used the low-cost, high-impact construction method, and then because and then the merchants sued, and now they're and, and they had to pledge to use a more expensive construction method for the next line in Vancouver. But in Toronto, where they didn't have that pattern, they, there's just a lot of learning of how to do things, and this learning of how to do things is bad. Things like design-build contracts, a lot of privatization of the state, um, a lot of over-reliance on consultants rather than in-house capacity. It's, kind of, it's really easy to sell this slate of bad ideas to politicians because what you're telling the politicians is you should have more power. Your political appointees should have more power. The civil service should have less power. So politicians love this and then things suck. Okay. Well, I... something that you see spreading from kind of its origins in the United States and the United Kingdom all over the Anglosphere in the last, let's say, 20 years.
0: Okay, I think this is this is this is really interesting. I think there's maybe several like I guess threads to untangle. So one thread is just I guess to a certain extent the cultural hegemony of the US where other English speaking countries are presumably more highly influenced by US, I don't know, norms and so the US has basically been exporting bad management practices and this could be viewed as I don't know Maybe somewhat analogous to how kind of right, lots of countries, more countries are playing basketball today than they were 30 years ago, partially because of kind of U.S. dominance in global entertainment. But this is specifically U.S. dominance in I don't know understanding how to build subways that we're now exporting a set of kind of bad management practices.
1: Um, not just U.S. It's also the U.K. So mm-hmm. the so a lot of this is dialogue between the U.S. and the U.K. in which. I have a bad idea. You have a bad idea. We share them. So now we have two bad ideas. So I I don't want to blame Thatcherism because I do know that British construction costs rose from the 70s to the 90s. But I don't know what exactly happened in between because the Jubilee line was 70s and the Jubilee line extension was 90s. And I don't have anything big in between them. In the United States, bear in mind, in the United States, I mean, in New York, at least, the costs have been high going back to the 30s. It's just that Americans will not learn from foreigners. Maybe possibly they will acknowledge the existence of Canada from time to time Britain. But I mean, go to an American and tell them, okay, um, you should figure out how to implement policy to become more like Germany. And this is Germany. Germany is a rich country. Even that will lead to like excuse mongering. And they see Americans ask, okay, well, is there an American example? That's good. Well, twenty years ago, there was there no longer is there's this kind of flattening of bad practice throughout the United States. You see this in Seattle, for example, Seattle even ten years ago was building subways not affordably but only for a fifty percent premium and and the next thing that they're planning to build is the the Ballard West Seattle line it's six hundred fifty million dollars per kilometer and it's only thirty something percent underground I mean it's like a factor of four premium and L.A., same thing. L.A. 20 years ago looked semi decent; It no longer does. And I know that, for example, they brought in a consultant from New York to help with construction in San Francisco. Why would they bring a consultant from New York? New York is a failure. Well, they don't think of it that way. They think of it as, ooh, New York is a big, complex system. Let's learn from them. So, So it matters, I think, that New York is the worst in the United States because I see managers in New York not even ecology existence of things that happen every day in boston it's pretty awful so this is why english is bad and bear in mind france has a lot of cultural cringe toward the anglosphere because of growth rates and because the managerial class is more empowered in britain in the us than in france so they kind of like becoming more like america in that sense so they so because of problems that they had with grand paris express they decided to adopt it to well, to let go of France's traditional separation between the design, the public planning, and the construction teams. And because they said, oh, it's a complex project, we need to maybe adopt some design-build ideas, and then they had another cost over and as a result. It's, I mean, when someone is big, it's really hard to say, they suck, don't be like them.
0: The U.S. has basically begun adopting the hegemonic power. So we don't like listening to anybody except maybe Canada and the U.K. occasionally. And then two is because the biggest cities in the U.S. are seen as, I guess, the high status ones. People are copying from them, even though they have cost overruns. If we go back 30 years, right? So we're seeing a little bit, at least in the in the kind of English-speaking world, a flattening of practices for building subways. If we go back 30 years, was there a wide variety of practices to yes. build subways? Yeah.
1: The design-build plague is recent, but I mean, New York was not doing... New York was not doing design-build either. I mean, it's just that you need to have...
0: What this, is design-build? Design-build
1: is a system in which you award a contract to one private consultant to handle both the design and the construction of a project. This can work if you're doing something very commodity-like, for example, a parking garage, a municipal parking garage. It does not work for any complex project. Why not? Because the private consultant is not necessarily going to be under any kind of internal professional commitment to reducing costs. I mean, the, headla- the bid... I mean, the bids are evaluated on cost, but if you say we can't do that, I mean, it's kind of, there's more veto points to telling people no. So if, for example, some local neighborhood group says we are worried about impact during construction, it's harder for a private consultant to argue with them. And you're more at risk of not getting a contract again, because you are a political problem. And it's much easier for the public sector to argue. So so the
0: incentive is for the private designer and builder to add on a bunch of costs that might then minimize some neighborhood externalities, but they end up being much higher than if the public sector that could basically say, suck it up, you live here, so you're going to have construction in front of your house for three months, and the private sector isn't able to do that.
1: I would not call it an externality. I would call it an imagined externality. A lot of it is merchants, yeah, so a lot of it is just surplus extraction. And it, and this is the worst when you have really high benefit projects like the Toronto Electrification Project. Uh, it's something that they should have done 70 years ago, but they didn't. So at normal costs, we're talking about to figure benefit cost ratio. Even with a little bit of cost problems, they thought it was going to be eight. So they added a 100% contingency. And when you have a 100% contingency, you're going to find ways to spend it. The, some people demanded noise walls for electrification, so these this is going to make the trains less noisy. But they demanded noise walls, so they gave them a billion Canadian dollars in, electri- in electrification and noise walls anyway. And even with all these, and likewise, when they wanted to build some infill stations, so in really cheap countries you can build them for a single figure million, but not necessarily a high figure. In Germany, which is a medium cost country, it's ten million euros boston which has weird things that they have to they constantly outsource the design to consultants because they think that hiring in the public sector is a sin and even in boston it's 20 to 25 million dollars and in toronto because of because it just didn't care about cost control because they had such a high benefit cost ratio it's more than 100 million canadian so even with the complete want and inattention to cost control in Toronto, the benefit-cost ratio is still three, and this so kind of the, the incentive is to like say yes to to everyone, rather than tell them to, rather than to tell them to, rather than telling them to shove off. And once you lock in that you say yes to everyone, it's hard to say no, even for projects that have lower benefits. And you see this, uh, for example, with high-speed railings in Northeast corridor They are incapable of saying no to nimby's, even about things that are only in their heads, like they think that i mean they think that taking 20 houses in a suburb is going to ruin the suburb no it's not You're it's 20 houses houses that are probably selected to be the closest to the freeway anyway so a lot of it again it's not an externality it's a perceived externality to the point that it's just surplus extraction someone says i think this is bad give me money it's a it's an enormously negative sum game
0: and you've also been touching on this point a few times, and maybe, I guess, to figure out how to articulate it a little bit more clearly. A lot of, I guess, the public sector has, to a certain extent, been hollowed out, where previously That's there would be a lot of engineers on staff that would be able to do some of this internally or provide much more yep. don't know, detailed oversight of the projects. And that has changed. Is that primarily in Anglo countries or English-speaking countries? Is that universal? And how, how has that kind of affected the cost overruns?
1: Okay, so I don't know if it's universal because I haven't studied every country. I know it specifically has not happened in Southern Europe. Italy has a very intact civil service and very low cost. Scandinavia, same thing. German costs are higher. I don't know why. People here blame NIMBYism. It's easier to sue in Germany. Again, over things that are mostly purely in NIMBY's heads or just purely bad faith. There's, there's this gigafactory that Elon Musk wants to build in the suburbs of Berlin. Every recognized environmental organization in Germany is allowed to sue over basically every project that happens. So all the environmental organizations in and around Berlin met and decided they were not going to sue because they like electric cars. In comes a Bavarian-based organization that is affiliated with the extreme right. They make up reasons. The real reason they don't like the Gigafactory is that it would employ Polish immigrants. And that delayed the project. But it delayed the project by only about a year, a year and a half. That's it. At this point, they lost the lawsuit, Musk won. At this point, the Gigafactory is not opening because Musk is not necessarily the best at the logistics. And there are things that he didn't anticipate would be, like, think, some kind of access road or something. So the NIMBYs have some power, but it's often fear of NIMBYs and preemptive surrender. In Germany, as well as in the Anglo world, I mean, in California, kind of high Speed Rail, I mean, NIMBYs were incredibly powerful and had a lot of technical merit. Even the sort of technical merit a judge could understand, like, I mean, there was some smoking gun with the weighting of various factors, changed to lead to the desired conclusion. And even that was only, I think, a three-year delay. And even that, and it wasn't a real delay, they could keep designing throughout this. It's just three-year delay in certifying the environmental impact report. But you see a lot of defensive design in the United States where the... Again, the Northeast Corridor high-speed rail. There was just a lot of informal pressure on the consultants. I mean, on the junior consultants, way they're senior managers, to avoid touching Fairfield County, Connecticut. So this is why that's kind of left as a magic as a magic asterisk. Whereas, if they just said screw Darien, some towns don't get to dictate infrastructure to the rest of the Northeast and carve right of way where necessary. I mean, yeah, people would sue, and then they would lose, mm-hmm. and then you could have high-speed rail between New York and New Haven for a couple billion dollars. But instead of doing that, there they, they were just informal pressure not to touch it. And this is a lot easier to do in the private sector than in the public sector, because in the public sector, there's still a lot of informal pressure, but it's easier to resist because you can't have informal things that you will not get this contract again.
0: So how do you weight these different influences on price differentials? For example, if I think about the environmentalism and NIMBYs, that seems to be mostly kind of in the 70s, right? And NEPA was passed in, what, 70? And obviously, over time, the kind of NEPA requirements have increased. If you look at a kind of hollowing out of the public sector, that's typically attributed to Thatcher and Reagan in the 80s. You were mentioning yes. that New York, the subway costs were beginning to kind of increase in a way that wasn't clear exactly what the benefit was in the 30s so how it's, do you kind of weight these different input factors to the the cost
1: the issue is not that there's environmental protection laws they have these here too the issue is that they're enforced by lawsuit rather than by an internal bureaucracy and so in italy there's an antiquities protection authority that will tell you no you can't build a subway station this way it might threaten roman ruins you have to use something more expensive and as a result they're trying to build a metro station and, and they're they're extending this line called Metro Line C into the center of Rome, a line where within the city of Rome, but in newer parts of it, let's say 18th, 19th, 20th century parts of it, Metro Station might cost 40 million euros. And then closer in, we're talking maybe a hundred, and now they're planning to build one at Piazza Venezia. So that's near the wedding cake and near a bunch of ruins from the forum. And I think that one is four hundred, five hundred million euros, maybe. But that's specific to one location. In New York, nineteenth century neighborhoods also build subways in kind of the same method for seven hundred million dollars instead of for the same techniques that in Italy would cost an order of magnitude less. So a lot of it is when you have things that are enforced by lawsuit because that's just less reliable the result, and you and, and there's a lot of fear of that. The hollowing out of the public sector, I mean, yes, this is Reagan and Thatcher, but it's something that's a lot clearer in Britain than in the US. In the US, it's not so much that the public sector was hollowed, as never built up. The United States never built up the state capacity that Britain built and then dismantled, or that, for example, France built and is only starting to dismantle now, or that Germany, same thing. So in the 1930s, it was mostly they just didn't care about costs. They didn't think it was important. The public sector was trying to drive the privately operated subways into bankruptcy. So they built even areas that were kind of questionable. They they had a lot of overbuilding in the 30s as well, like underground flying junctions, but they were built cut and cover. So they had to shave corners of buildings. So they had to like, destroy corner buildings, which were the more expensive ones. Instead of trying to come up with cheaper methods afterward, the way that Britain did. Um, so, so Britain, its first subway line, so there that would be the Metropolitan Line in London was very cheap in today's money i think 35 million dollars a kilometer the second one the district line was a lot more expensive i think maybe 90 which was a record in the it was the 1860s it remained unbroken until new york in the 1930s so and the reason it was so expensive is they had to carve new right-of-way for cut and cover construction through areas that were expensive even then like kensington and this is why they had to invent deep boring in the 1880s and 90s to avoid doing that again and construction costs fell and in new york so forget that uh, the deep boring by right? the 1950s for example i don't think it would save any money but um in new york they had to carve a lot of right-of-way And when we say had they kind of, it's not because they had it's because they got used to it in the 1910s new york carved the one two three trains through the village Back when it was called the Lower West Side, and was a the gritty industrial neighborhood where you had the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. In the twenties, early thirties, they carved the same thing on Sixth Avenue on the on what is currently the A, C, and E trains. But by then, the village was already gentrifying, so it was just more expensive to do it. And then they did these corner shaves, and they they had all these underground flying junctions. They just didn't really care and that somehow turned into the default way to do things. There was a lot of resentment that the system was not finished. Even today, see rail fans post these fantasy maps that they were planning to build in 1929 or in 1939 that were not completed because of either the depression or the war and say what um and, and say oh look back in the day we used to dream. And instead of saying no, back in the day you used to waste money, don't waste money now. And because of that, you're starting to see Plans that are kind of unquestioned, even though they're generations out of date, prioritization of lines that is generations out of date so a lot of it is this kind of declines breeds decline and it's not actual decline. New York City' is a lot wealthier now than it was in the thirties, but in relative terms, it absolutely has declined. New York State, I'm forgetting in what exact year, but I think it was late twenties or thirties, was by far the wealthiest in America. I think it was sixty five percent higher per capita income than the rest of the country. It used to be, I think, New York. I believe it was New York, California, Massachusetts, Illinois. But New York and California were both either the two wealthiest or number one and three. So, for example, everyone thinks, oh, the Central Valley is poor and was always poor because of Great were rough. No, the Central Valley, I mean, yes, it was poor, but other parts of the country were poorer. Maybe California has the demographic growth sense, though so California looks back to its days of greatness in the, let's say, 70s or something. but. But in New York, it's mid-century. Again, not because the city was better than, but because the United States was, relatively speaking, richer than the rest of the developed world. New York, more so than the rest of the United States. The South was barely first world at the time. So you have this kind of technological magaism, let's call it, where in New York, there's widespread resistance to anything new. And this is why they kind of end up being stuck in these kind of mid-century methods. That are then exported because everyone says, "Oh, New York has a subway. Let's build like that."
0: If I think of Italy, if I think of Southern Europe, I don't think of right, like effective governments, effective bureaucracies. To me, so there's this, I guess, interesting cultural question. They seem to have been relatively effective on these provision of large infrastructure projects because of their internal capacity. So, is the general story of just ineffective bureaucracies in Southern Italy wrong, or what is it about the rail bureaucracies? or infrastructure bureaucracies that make them comparatively effective while the rest of their bureaucracies don't function particularly well.
1: Okay, so I also reject the question of, the, of whether the rest of their bureaucracies don't function particularly well. I mean, yes, these countries are by European standards poor. If you look at, for example, Corona, they had higher death rates in Northern Europe, but it's entirely a matter of poverty. So there's the stable that you can find on the internet for, um, proportion of people aged 25 to 34 who live with their parents now this is partly cultural so in scandinavia the culture is you leave home at 18 and you never live with housemates you live in a tiny apartment by yourself so the proportion there is i think five percent and in france and germany in the united states in the united kingdom maybe that culture is not a thing so it's let's say in the teens sometimes low teens sometimes high teens and then in southern europe we're talking 30, 40% 20, 30, 40% just because they're poorer, so they can't afford as much stuff. So there's more household infection. But if you compare this with, for example, their ability to vaccinate, there's no obvious Southern European weakness compared with Northern Europe. And Italy has this reputation for corruption, which is absolutely a thing. But in the same way that the United States has a reputation for racism, which is absolutely a thing, and you can even see it, still today with police brutality rates. the united states does not however have more job discrimination for example against minorities than let's call it the european average so there are european countries with less discrimination in the united states i think germany is one of them and there are ones with more like france but overall it's not like the us is materially worse on discrimination than europe because the same history of racism is also why do you have Strong civil rights laws, and it's the same with Italy and anti corruption laws. So, yes, in the 1970s and 80s, it was awful and construction costs were high precisely because of bribes. And then in the 90s, they had this process called manipulite. It actually has no connection to the word manipulation. I mean, the money is the same, it's hand, but the pulite is a different root. It means clean hands, where due to bribery, in, actually, it was an infrastructure project. It may have been the Milan Metro Line 3, maybe, where they started investigating politicians and one politician was so obviously corrupt the party, kind of cut them off, blabbered and gave so many names that eventually half of the Italian parliament was under indictment. And all of the major political parties of Italy crashed and burned as a result. The current central-left party, the Democratic Party, was formed from the carcasses of the few communists who were moderate enough to actually be in... Politics and more importantly, were not implicated in the corruption scandal. And likewise, from the carcasses of the center right came Berlusconi, who was incredibly corrupt. So, as soon as he came to power, he shut these investigations down. But these investigations did succeed in forcing out a lot of the corruption and passing very strong anti corruption laws. And construction costs in Italy in the 80s, I think they were 300 something million dollars per kilometer adjusted for inflation. So higher than global, it generally costs have a secular tendency to rise. At this point, they're not 300, 350, they're 150. Again, unless you're building underneath Roman ruins and then it's more. But in Milan, it's 150, give or take. In parts of Rome that are not Roman, again, about maybe that. So it's absolutely possible to reduce costs. But the process, it'll take a while before people notice. So in the same way that people still think that Italy is as corrupt as it was 40 years ago, which it absolutely isn't. Kind of the only way people actually accept something is if it is if Italy stops being poor, but Italy has different problems like tax um, evasion that are completely separate from the actual bribery. And so people say, oh, well, uh, if you think Italy is so smart, why ain't it rich? Ha ha, I'm so smart. Uh, I do not need to listen to everyone, to anyone. This is kind of the mentality. And you see this also in Germany, people in... So why does Germany not have high-speed rail? I mean, we do have high-speed rail lines, they're not especially well designed, but we don't have a national network. Why? Because high speed rail was invented in Japan and then was brought to Europe by France. Italy and Spain look up to France. Germany looks down on France. So Italy and Spain built high speed rail networks connecting all of their major cities. And Spain, especially, refined this way, learning, learning from France and from Germany and picking the best at each. Unfortunately, not in operation, Spanish operations still suck, but the construction is incredibly cheap. Germany thinks it is better than France, so it will never learn a French idea. Even when France does something better, like in having actually fast trains connecting the major cities.
0: How should we think about I don't know the evolution of mega infrastructure projects, partially rail but partially other over the next kind of 20, 30 years? Because your model is basically one of what might be described as, I don't know, kind of cultural hegemony or cultural elitism where there is this mechanism by which whatever is done in the high-status countries, I guess because the feedback loop for these projects is so long that whatever is done in the high-status countries, even if it's not effective, is broadly adopted. And so if I think about the future, right, the U.S. is probably has less relative power in the world, but our cultural hegemony is arguably kind of peaking. Over last summer, we saw Black Lives Matter protests in places some in Japan and New Zealand, et cetera, are we going to see the continued export of American ineffective cost mechanisms, particularly to countries that might not Have English as their first language. And then the other kind of, I guess, main consideration is China is obviously becoming a global player. I'm not sure how kind of, I guess, their their status is perceived. And so whether people are beginning to adopt their their construction mechanisms, it's happening a little bit in low-income countries, but I don't know to what extent it might might start happening in high-income countries. So is that kind of the right framing or how should we expect the evolution of costs of mega infrastructure projects, particularly rails, to, to evolve?
1: Oh, it's it's absolutely the right frame. So rich countries are not going to learn from China. It's still too poor. I mean, yes, you have people who wish that they had the tight control of the workers that they have in China. You see this, I mean, you do sometimes see um, really rich tech managers kind of wish they were Chinese tech managers and you never see this kind of, I wish we were like that toward countries that are actually richer or even stronger in tech. Like I, I don't think I've ever seen, I wish we were Taiwan about this um people discovered this with corona and then never learned a single thing taiwan did in january taiwan had an outbreak of corona at a hospital 15 people got corona in order to prevent this from spreading they put four thousand people in quarantine six tested positive as a result the corona outbreak did not spread beyond these and taiwan is fully reopened because there's no corona In all Western conversations about it, I mean, to say Western, I mean the US and Europe, Australia and New Zealand are close enough that they understand. The US and Europe still do not talk about centralized quarantine. So nobody learns from smaller countries. Now, again, China is big, but China is also not rich. But it absolutely exercises this kind of soft power in developing countries, especially ones that are not very democratic, because they also wish that they could control the opposition the way China does. Absolutely. You see people outsourcing their construction um, to China, and it's leading to all of the same problems that you saw with Western aid or Soviet aid in the Cold War, for example. So I imagine that you know what isomorphic mimicry is. Yep, It's awful. Again, it's in, poor, it's in actually poor countries. And one of the patterns that we found actually is that in countries that are not first world, ex colonies tend to have higher costs. So China has medium cost. China is not a low-cost country. It's low-cost compared to the United States because compared with the United States, everything is low-cost. But China is the same as the non-Chinese global median. I say non-Chinese because about half of global subways in the last 20 years have been built there. But China is basically the same as the rest of the world median. So same as France, for example, maybe a bit better than Germany, a lot worse than Korea or Southern Europe or Scandinavia or Turkey. And, I mean, Turkey is actually a good example. It was never colonized. It learns, but for all of what people talk about, oh, it's cultural abnegation with camelism. No, Turkey is a lot less culturally self-abnegating than the sort of countries that try to send all gay people to jail because they are proud of their values or something and say we're against Western values. No, I mean, these countries are desperate for Western approval. They're trying to imitate Tory values and not Stonewall values, but it's the same thing. I mean, it's imitation of other values. In Iran, likewise, construction costs are about medium. Latin America has a range. Brazil is more expensive. The I think Ecuador and Chile are the cheap ones. And Ecuador, I think, also used Spanish consultants for the Quito metro. So they happen to learn from the correct people. But Latin America is not very poor. I mean, some countries are. I don't think they build any subways. But let's say Chile is an upper-middle-income country. Um, and then you look at ex-colonies, and it's awful. India is pretty bad. Bangladesh is awful. Indonesia is awful. Vietnam is awful. The Philippines are awful. Egypt is awful. Nigeria, the construction costs of the metro, of the elevated metro they're trying to build are bad. And also the way they're building it is bad. And it's basically coming from outsourcing design often to either China or Japan, depending on geopolitics. And so they use techniques that maybe are appropriate for countries with seven times their income or eight times their income. With predictable results. I mean, and so Addis Ababa, the construction costs of the Addis Ababa light rail were not awful. They were okay. They were not awful, but for example, they cut corners by just closing cross streets instead of building through them and you know having railroad crossing gates because like maybe they were worried that people would just step onto the train. They they didn't really build elevated grade separations or anything. But more importantly. Chinese consultants built the, built this for them, and in China you have reliable electricity. In Ethiopia you don't. So whenever there's a power outage, the trains stop working. Now, early twentieth century America did not have reliable electricity, so you had streetcar companies and you had railroads that were electrifying, and they made sure to get their own power plants. So it was actually really common until the New Deal banned that as an antitrust measure. It was really common for the power company in an American city to also run the streetcars because they use the same infrastructure of wires, more or less. So there weren't going to be power outages. I mean, there might be, but the streetcar always gets first dibs. So this is how they had reliable operations under electricity. And because it's no longer relevant to a rich or even middle-income country, a lot of low-income countries that are doing this isomorphic mimicry fail. Or another thing, China really likes putting the train stations out on the moon. It's even worse in France. In France, the major Out station, where? On the moon.
0: So just, this, what, what does that mean? Like far in the suburbs far. or what?
1: Yeah, exactly. So in, so whenever you build a high-speed railway, you sometimes have to compromise and build a station that's not in city center because you can't reach that. Even Osaka is like that. Osaka you know, is a few kilometers outside city center, but a few kilometers on a subway line. And I mean, it's at this point- an important secondary center of Osaka. And different countries make different levels of effort. The Japanese way and the German way is you go to city center whenever you can. The French way is major cities get a city center stop, but anything in between can get a station that's, if you're really lucky, is going to be tangent to the built-up area like Rams or maybe Avignon. And if you're less lucky, it's going to be 20 kilometers from the city, like uh, there's, or 30 or even more. There's this station that was, called a beetroot station because it was right in the middle between Amiens and Saint-Quentin because they didn't want it was serve one or the other and they just decided to stay on the to stay right next to the fairway to get to Lille faster and the and you see this in a bunch of places in France and in China the innovation is they do that even in major cities so in Shanghai they have a historic rail station that's just outside city center like no if you, like, we think two subway stops from People's Square, but the high speed trains don't go there. They built a new station far in the West at a domestic airport called Hong Chao. And they're kind of exporting that specific model of like big stations on the moon with um, security control, access control, where here any bomb you can walk onto a platform to African countries where they build their railways. Like, uh, I know they did it in Ethiopia, I think also in Nigeria. And it just doesn't work because then, I mean, you're leaving people several tens of kilometers outside city center. And maybe in Shanghai, it can vaguely work because you have more growth, more housing growth. So maybe you can turn that into a secondary center, I don't know. And you, have, you also have subway lines that connect you onward.
0: But this is- Presumably, they're also optimizing for security and not just optimizing for transportation effectiveness.
1: Okay, so the TGV, is starting to get a little bit of access control for ticketing, mostly because SNCF is run by airline managers who don't know how trains work, but this is last three or last four years. I, At the time I left Paris, which was a little over two years ago, God, you know, so the busiest station, I think the second busiest TGV station was still no, still had no access control, except if you're going to London because of border control bullshit. So... The only time terrorists have ever bombed a high-speed train was in France. This was in the 80s, so that with the TGV, it was new. It was kind of France's bride, so Carlos the Jackal put a bomb on the train. I never remember how many people died, I think two or three. More people died from a bomb placed in the locker room somewhere at the station. The two or three deaths, that was viewed as a major embarrassment to the cause of international terrorism. So terrorists stopped putting bombs on high-speed trains afterward and there was never any kind of access control. Germany, same thing. Despite the I mean Germany has Germany had Bader meinhof The trains are not access control. The subways I mean don't even have fare gates. So when you make a decision that you're going to be paranoid and do bag checks or something or make people walk through x-ray machines to get on a, to get into a subway station like they do in Bangkok that's not optimizing for security. That's optimizing for bullshit. I don't think they have security controls anywhere in Japan on this, and they had the sarin gas uh, attack. They do have access control for the Shinkansen because of some weird things with ticketing. They also have fewer conductors on the Shinkansen trains than they do on European trains. That's very different from doing security theater, which they do in China. Again, it's not security. I mean, it's not. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that China thinks that every Uyghur is about to launch a 9-11 at them, but in objective reality, no.
0: Right. Biden has released his infrastructure plan. You wrote a good piece for Niskanen about that. So I guess high level, is Biden's infrastructure plan good? What are the parts that could be improved? What are the parts that he's kind of focusing on, on for the right things?
1: Okay. So it's hard for me to say good or bad because I can tell you a lot about construction costs. I can't put it in legislative language other than things like, oh, the federal government should demand cost control. The federal government should start saying no to agencies with a bad track record. There's a good... So the problem is because the United States is uniformly bad. You can't. I mean, you're in a position that you could have been in the Obama era where the FDA could have said, we're not giving a cent to New York, but we are going to fund things in LA because at the time LA was cheaper or Seattle, same thing. So first of all, they need to care more about common But again, I don't know how to put it in a legislative language. I will say that I mean I can find bad smoking guns in the Biden infrastructure plan. The biggest is that of the 85 billion dollars given to modernizing transit, 55 are going to be wasted in something called state of good repair. State of good repair is a fascinating example of how you need to constantly oversee the government using media and popular pressure, but at macro level on micro level of People saying, I don't want the tree in front of my house to go. I mean, you want something more serious than that? And the the most serious oversight is when you do an expansion, people can tell that the expansion is opening or not, okay? People can tell that 2nd Avenue subway opened. People can tell that the Seven extension opened. And these actually exercises an important disciplining function, whereas when you do state of good repair, it's like saying you will create or preserve affordable housing. This is a common formulation in New York. No, nobody says I will build X housing units because that is a concrete promise that people can see you break. But if you say create or serve, you can say, well, my mom, uh, well, the experts who I uh, paid who know that if they don't reach a, re- the desired conclusion, they will never work for me again, said that if we hadn't been in power, then there would have been this many units, The more the, this many more units that would have been vacancy decontrolled or something. It's the same with, the, with Obama in 2010 saying, not saying I reduced unemployment, which he didn't, but saying that if he hadn't been around unemployment, it would have been even higher. So that's a problem with state of good repair. It's not a concrete promise that people can verify. So people say, oh, well, our maintenance will improve. No, it won't. But They're not going to say, we're going to improve the state of the tracks. And as a result, you will see the trains run 20% faster. They aren't going to, I mean, this is what Andy Byford tried to do, and you saw how Cuomo treated him. So, state of good repair. So, it it boils down to something that actually was done well in the 80s and 90s in New York. But essentially, it came out of action of all items, like reducing breakdowns, reducing 10 miles an hour speed limits. Not like reducing the speed limits, reducing the proportion of the system that had these uh, limits. So, people visibly saw the system get cleaner, more reliable faster. And this is why it worked. And and subsequently, it's just been a black hole of money that goes nowhere. So the the most important actionable thing that I can say is take the 55 billion for state of good repair, turn that into zero and spend all of the 55 on the expansion bucket, which is unfortunately only 30. Five data to ADA, that's good. 25 to everything else. So instead of making that 30 expansion, 55 state of good repair, make it 85 expansion, make it very clear Agencies that have a track record of under maintenance shall not receive federal funds. There's also the Amtrak bucket, which is kind of terrible, but that's because Amtrak is kind of terrible. But I don't think the American government is ready for the conversation about wiping out Amtrak and replacing it with an agency run by people who know what electronics before concrete means.
0: I think that's it's, most, it's sort of, I think that's most government agencies.
1: <laughs> um. Right, but it's actually important in rail and because the United States is generations behind the global frontier, the usual American way of just looking to Americans to innovate will suck because it's not like anyone else in America knows how Swiss railways work. I mean the electronics of far concrete is a first world observation. It does not apply in really poor countries. It's the observation that it's much cheaper to invest in more reliable equipment and systems than to build things that they call concrete. So that would be more tracks for example or grade separations switzerland also japan have ridiculously underbuilt rail networks like the you have these lines where in america they say oh we need four tracks there or we need three tracks there and in switzerland they could have two tracks maybe even sec- sections of single track they just schedule the trains so that they don't conflict and they build the infrastructure that they need based on the timetable Amtrak has no idea how to do that. I mean, you tell them about periodic timetables and they look at you like you're an alien and then they rattle off excuses, many of which are just fraudulent. I've heard many years ago an excuse from the FRA, which subsequently, thankfully, did realign its regulations with European norms. But before they did, Stephen Smith, uh, Market Urbanism was asking them and they said, well, America has a lot of grade crossings and American trucks are heavier than European trucks. So the gross load of an American truck is the gross load limit of a U.S. highway network is 40 short tons. This is 36 metric tons. In Europe, it's mostly 40 metric tons. And there are countries that it's, where it's higher, uh, In Sweden, it's 60 metric tons. And they're very happy where their trains. The trains don't actually crash and kill many people. People who actually compare these things might notice that in the U.S., they try to reduce the um, weight of a track, not a track, a truck. In Europe, they instead tried to reduce its footprint to make it, to make it narrower to fit into narrow historic streets. But the trucks are a little bit heavier. But the funky from the ferry was tasked with making up excuses. Just thought it would be heavier in America and that nobody would check them. And again, this is an agency that actually well, or they didn't the know the difference direction.
0: between metric and English tons.
1: That, I mean, no, no, even if they didn't, it would be 40 versus 40. I mean, I mean, 40 versus 40 is the same number. So no, it's just they didn't know. They don't care to know. They think, I mean, everyone else around them doesn't know either. So they get away with saying these things. And again, the FRA did realign regulations with global norms, but the actual operating agencies still don't touch that. So New Jersey Transit is still buying trains compliant with obsolete regulations at factor of two premium cost. In fact, it's a, I, mean, I literally just sent this in a Buy America article, so I had to look at the premiums of a lot of American orders. Buy America does have a premium. It's not a factor of two premium. It's a factor of 1.5, for example, yeah, premium, maybe 1.4. And that order was, I think, 1.7, maybe even more. So they got these obsolete, low-performance premium cost trains. Amtrak, same thing with the new trains that they're getting for the Northeast corridor. I don't even know what they're compliant with, but um, partly because it's by America, partly because they decided on a bespoke design they don't really need, partly because Senator Streamer sabotaged the bid to be able to brag about job creation in upstate New York. It's a factor of two premium. But the point is, nobody in America respects European expertise on this, even when Europe isn't the global frontier of this and the United States isn't there's I mean you need to it's something you need to persuade every person separately and then say well the other people in my agency won't believe me so there's kind of a I kind know of collective hallucination and the Anglosphere in general thinks it's doing well to the point that the, there are people who end up being experts in other do you, you know the trend, the tendency of people to be experts in other people's social problems like how Israelis who, when you criticize their human rights record Suddenly turn into experts into every developed country, into the into developed democracies' human rights problems. Mm-hmm. It's the same with Americans who suddenly turn into experts in their own eyes in European political problems just so that Europeans stop telling them that European trains work better or European healthcare or whatever.
0: Yeah. Looking at, we've talked a little bit about low-income countries and cities in low-income countries and how they can provide public transit. So how does that differ? The point you made was that oftentimes they're kind of benchmarking on using contractors coming from countries that have incomes uh, order of magnitude or 5x higher. So how do you actually adjust the kind of provision of these subways or other large transportation networks in countries that have incomes at $2,000 per capita or $3,000 per capita?
1: PPP. It's all PPP adjusted. It's not income adjusted if it if it were income adjusted by far the costliest country in the world would be Bangladesh. like Bangladeshi costs, even with just the PPP adjustment are I think maybe almost as bad as American. I know that people think that it's about the soil there because alluvial soil does increase costs. You see this in the Netherlands, you see this in Shanghai. These Bangladeshi projects are elevated or mostly elevated. One of them is in fact entirely elevated, line sucks, and they're still really expensive. I mean I guess if you if you let Japan build your system then the poorer you are the less appropriate it's going to be. Overall by the way the GDP per capita to cost correlation I believe is it's positive but it's something like 0.04 which is not statistically significant.
0: Well let's say you're you're, you're in a country that has right purchasing power, power adjusted income of like $5000 and you need to build okay, you want to build Niger. let's say Nigeria. Okay sure you want to build a metro here. metro for for the city right like what what should you do?
1: Concretely, let's talk about Lagos, and the reason I'm going to talk about Lagos is because I actually poked around there more than elsewhere. In Lagos, first of all, who do you learn from? The answer is you don't invite foreign consultants. That's the first thing. The second thing, what do you learn from is you read whatever you can about the history of early subways in the United States, France, and Germany. The reason I'm not saying Britain is that Britain built using deep boring. Which is not what Nigeria should be doing. In all other ways, Britain is also really useful to learn from, which means you learn how to use labor-intensive methods. Nigeria does not have expensive labor, but whenever you import capital, that is expensive. So this means you build, so so you use, for example, the fact that the Nigerian roads and the, the main urban roads are very wide. You build either elevated or cut and cover. I'm guessing that in Lagos, you want to do mostly elevated because I, I have no idea what the geology is, I mean, the people in charge in Nigeria, I do know. But generally, when you're in an alluvial floodplain, you want to be elevated because you're going to have water table problems. In, for example, Nairobi, I'm guessing that it's probably better to do cut and cover subways because the terrain there is very different. So you do that. You build four track lines, not two track lines, like in New York. Remember, Lagos today, is almost the same size of New York, metropolitan area to metropolitan area. And let's discuss urbanization rates in Nigeria and natural growth rates. I mean, Lagos is obviously going to become a lot larger very soon. So you build four track lines, local and express like in New York. You absolutely can do some um, leapfrogging. So you maybe want to build the lines around higher speed standards than New York did, but you want to use labor intensive methods for cut and cover or for elevated you absolutely can just build concrete viaducts. Remember that most of the people in the country do not own cars, even in the city. Forgetting what Lagos's car ownership is, I think it's 100, I want to say it's 250 per thousand people. So same as New York City, but most of these are motorcycles, but don't quote me on that. So most people don't own cars. Yes, the richer people own cars. So what? This means, for example, it should be Liberally taking lanes from cars if the street is very wide, which it is. So you know how um, sometimes concrete viaducts just have pylons in the middle of the road? So you can absolutely take two lanes from that. Yes, people will complain again. So what? And build a four track system that connects all of the major parts of Lagos to Lagos Island. In Lagos Island, you might need to bite the bullet and build things underground, but Lagos Island is small, so even with the cost premium, like in the Netherlands, it's gonna be okay. Know what system you're gonna build in advance. Don't build one, I mean, it's okay to build one line at a time, but know what line 12 is gonna be, because you're gonna wanna make sure that all the lines intersect correctly in Lagos Island. Nairobi, same thing, except it's not gonna be Lagos, it's not called Lagos Island in Nairobi, the Central Business District is just the Nairobi Central Business District, like Hilton Park and such. That's where you wanna do it, you want to learn from the history of rich countries back when they had roughly your income level because that is roughly the labor to capital cost ratio that you're looking for don't bring china in even china is too rich definitely don't don't bring japan in do things yourself yes countries like this are incredibly self-aiding, incredibly self-advocating. Even India, which is not 5,000, India is, I think, 9,000. I mean, pre-corona, I think it was scratching 10,000, but corona is hitting it really hard. Even in India, I mean, basically every article you will read in Indian media about Indian infrastructure is going to talk about problems, even in cases where India is doing really well, like the electrification project. They keep talking about problems because India keeps thinking of itself as inferior. And so this is where you see a lot of isomorphic mimicry. Hell, you see this in Southern Europe. The difference is Southern Europe is similar enough to Northern Europe that isomorphic mimicry in Italy and Spain of let's say Germany and France actually works really well because the labor to capital cost ratios are very similar. So you just learn the things that France does well. You learn the things that Germany does well. You synthesize and you get Spain or you get uh, or, or I want to say you get Italy, but in Italy it's only starting to be that way. There's in Italy they're starting to adopt German ideas of operations, which work really well. But this is something you could do if you're a poor, rich country like Italy. You can't do it if you're poor. If you're an actually poor country like India, so a lot of it is just understanding that you cannot privatize the public sector into prosperity. You just can't.
0: Yeah. So we've got a few minutes left to end. Right? you kind of. Have a somewhat unusual career path in that you've sort of become a I don't know mini internet intellectual that is now influencing. Oh, boy, I hate that term. Okay, well you can give me a better term, but I, I find this. I a, I'm a, I'm a
1: researcher. I have like a have an appointment with Marin. Like I I don't exist just on the internet. Most of my income doesn't come from the internet.
0: Sure, that's true, but it feels as though you got your start on the internet. And yes, that you would not have that appointment with and you would not have all of this. The phenomenon that and I, I consider myself somewhat similarly in that, right, have started with engaging these Internet communities with a different perspective and now trying to figure out how to take this perspective and influence some of the kind of real world on the ground challenges. And I see this as kind of a broader I don't know class of phenomenon where there are these things that haven't really had this outside perspective before. So, just wanted to, I guess, for for the oh, yeah, last yeah. question, ask your your thoughts on how you see the evolution of this, with obviously yourself, but then with this kind of general phenomenon playing out as well.
1: So, I don't know if you've if you've heard me talk about this, but a lot of this comes from Ezra Klein and the Health of Nations, In the 2005 brief year out where it was I think maybe two pages. On the healthcare system of each of seven countries i believe it was the us germany france britain canada japan which i guess is six countries like forgetting if there was a seventh which kind of brought in to the forefront the name that in the united states healthcare isn't just in egalitarian it's just it's also less efficient than in universal healthcare developed countries and, and i saw this succeed and as a result i this is kind of what let me, I mean, I was thinking in comparative terms before that. I mean, when you're Israeli, again, Israel is a poorish country. It constantly compares itself with other countries. But I saw that, that Americans actually cared to some extent. So the spray started like pushing this. But I mean, again, it's not true for everything. I mean, the costs of K-12, for example, there is an American premium. It's not a very large one. And for example, teachers in Germany actually get paid better than in America. So the U.S. public spending is always a waste point is not always true. It just happens to be true in public transit construction and in the operations of mainline rail. Subway operations in New York is very wasteful, but for example Chicago isn't. So where is this going? I don't know. I mean in the Obama era I was dealing into with Ether and I mean the things that they were doing in the stimulus were pretty horrible. And now I do not know I do not know if there's an improvement because Again, I don't think of it in terms of legislative language, I think of it in terms of agency competence, but again, I don't know.
0: Great, well, that's the end. Thanks for coming (laughs) on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.